This is The Lack with Helen Rollins, Benjamin Studebaker, and Nina Power. Well, it won't be Helen Rollins for a little while. She's going to need a break. Helen will be taking a break, and Nina and I will continue on. So for the next, we don't know exactly how many episodes, it's going to be me and Nina. But we do have Helen this week, and we have Helen to talk about 35 Shots of Rum. So I'll kick us off. 35 Shots of Rum came out in 2008. It follows four people who live in two apartments. In one apartment, there lives a father and a daughter. The father is a widower who drives trains for a living, while the daughter studies anthropology and works in a shop that sells music on CD. In the same building, there are two other people, a young man and an older woman. The young man is romantically interested in the daughter, and the older woman is romantically interested in the father. It is not entirely clear why the young man and the older woman live together, but their proximity is certainly convenient for the plot. Eventually, the daughter will marry the young man. It is not clear whether the older woman ever lands the father. The film is largely concerned with how the daughter changes hands. It happens very slowly, and there is a lot of visual exposition. People glance at each other. There's dancing. It's a French film. These four people are absorbed in domestic life and in their relationships with one another. They are not fully committed to their other roles. The father attends a retirement party for a co-worker. The co-worker has long looked forward to retirement, but when it arrives, he realizes he has nothing to live for, that he has wasted his life driving trains. The father is untroubled. He says that when he has dark thoughts, he thinks about his daughter. Eventually, the co-worker commits suicide and the father discovers the body. The daughter studies anthropology, but does not participate in strike action to defend her department from cuts. One of the strike leaders tries to invite her to a concert. He buys her flowers. She doesn't care. She happens to be going to the concert anyway, but only because her father and the people across the hall are going. Their car breaks down on the way, and they decide not to bother with the concert. Instead, they pester a barkeep to reopen a closed bar so that they can drink and dance with each other. The barkeep is initially reluctant to reopen. I thought it was rather insensitive of these people to repeatedly demand she reopen the bar. But she acquiesces, and eventually she even appears to enjoy the dancing. The dancing scene, which goes on for all eternity is the scene where these four people are glancing at each other and it becomes abundantly clear that at the very least the daughter and the young man are preparing to couple up. The young man forces the daughter to admit her feelings by suggesting he will leave the apartment and take a job in a faraway land. It seems clear that for him the job's main function is to serve as a romantic catalyst that he would otherwise be indifferent to the work. He only suggests he will take it after his cat dies. The older woman writes love notes and stands at her balcony waiting. She waits in multiple senses, both for the father to return home from work and for the father to reciprocate her feelings. Of the four, she is the only character to explicitly claim she likes her work. She is a taxi driver and she likes meeting new people. But we never see the new people she meets. We only see her waiting around for the same man. Toward the end of the film, they go to visit the daughter's aunt, who is the father's sister-in-law. She is clearly lonely and reminisces about a time when they all saw more of one another. The aunt complains that people are too caught up in their own lives to come over and drink wine with her. The complaint is issued in a good-natured way, but it seems to clearly apply to these people, who don't give a toss about anything outside themselves. Unsurprisingly, they decline to stay the night. The film reminded me of Benjamin Constant's novel, Adolf, which is explicitly about the liberal individual's self-absorption and retreat into ideas of love and family. Constant was himself a liberal and advocated for a kind of private liberty, but he also worried that we would grow to love our private liberty too much, that we would become insufficiently engaged with the rest of the world because we would be so happy in our own affairs. These four people appear happy in their own affairs, but many of the people they interact with are clearly atomized, isolated, and depressed. What happiness that does exist in this film depends on clinging to fragile arrangements. The father can avoid his dark thoughts as long as he has the daughter, but what is he to do when she inevitably leaves? Drink 35 shots of rum, as it turns out. Will he pair up with the older woman out of desperation? Will he become an alcoholic? 
Those seem to be his remaining choices. The daughter enjoys living with her father, provided she can hang out with the young man. And when he threatens to leave, she is despondent, marrying him so as to keep him in her life. The older woman likes driving her taxi, but pines continuously for the father. The young man only tolerates a platonic relationship with the daughter while his cat lives. Once the cat dies, he effectively gives her an ultimatum without putting it into words. She comes to his apartment, and he pretends not to know why. Do you have something to tell me? He asks. She does, but there's something not quite right about it. I like to watch basketball. The NBA title this year was won by the Denver Nuggets, who feature Nikola Jokic, a Serbian center with a brilliant mind for passing angles. When the Nuggets won, the American press expected Jokic to be in a celebratory mood. But during the post-game press conference, Jokic said, Nobody likes their job. Maybe they do. They're lying. All Jokic wanted to do was return to Serbia, to his family, and to his horses. You see, the Serbian basketball player likes chariot racing. In Jokic's hometown, they put up banners when he returns. Perhaps when he was a child, basketball was his escape from his family or his school community. But now that he is a famous athlete paid many millions of dollars to play, basketball has developed an instrumental character. The family becomes an escape from basketball. But if the family falls apart, as it so often does, what then? These four people lack meaning and purpose outside of each other. This makes them heavily dependent on a very narrow base of support. A small change here or there is enough to throw the whole thing out of balance. If any one of them leaves or shifts position, all four of them will be made vulnerable to social realities none of them want to face. They are always just a few false steps away from the suicidal co-worker and the bored aunt. The family is a life raft, but it's made of rotting wood. Anyway. Let's hear what Helen thinks. Thanks, Benjamin. So um, part of the reason I chose this film was because maybe I thought it was apropos of the fact that I'm taking a little break. Um, I got COVID. I mean, yeah, COVID, COVID, blah, blah, COVID. But I got COVID actually much worse than I thought I was going to get um, about three or four months ago. And it has actually impacted my life in a way. And I sort of need to focus on uh, my private life rather than my public facing stuff. Um, and also because I'm at a, a pivotal point in my life in terms of maybe something to do with this film and I have to make choices uh, to take care of that in order to make that a possibility before it's too late or whatever. Um, so this film, you know, it spoke to me about about this idea of, of, of shift and moving on and how um, when people and things enter your orbit you know, dynamics change for a while. Uh, and I kind of like the way that this is done in a sort of, it has this sort of planetary feel. The characters are, are depicted in ways that are quite, um, it's not, it's not, it's a Claire Denis film. It's not a usual sort of like um, get to know all the characteristics of this person in a very kind of eye to eye way. It's more of a, um, a painterly approach, uh, a sort of still life approach and I feel like these characters are quite symbolic and they represent different different people at different points in their life. And they sort of people come and go and how this shifts sort of d dynamics in kind of a tranquil way. It's interesting, like a lot of her films, um, well, she has obviously this famous film that I don't know if you guys are going to do in the coming weeks, um, Beau Travail, which is, you know, a, a based on a Billy Bard and has sort of this like dance aspect to it. Um, but it's weird because it's a film that I used to absolutely love watching when it first came out. And when I was doing my undergrad degree, I was like focusing on film and I watched this film like so many times and I hadn't watched it for a little while. And I was sort of it came up recently and I was thinking like, what? What? I couldn't really remember what it was about it that really spoke to me. And I don't even know if it's like the aesthetic quality of the film or whether it's good or anything like that. But at the time, it was really my favorite film and I'd watch it in this very sort of like comforting kind of way. And it's often interesting when you rewatch things at a different point in your life or when you're a bit more mature and old or whatever and have different references, it sort of means different things. But there was something about it that I thought, like, this is very interesting, I think, on a personal level and also kind of a more political level. Um, and it's this relationship between the daughter and the father. And I think a lot of women have this um, interesting and complex dynamic with their, with their father. Um, and it's about the shift of a, of a woman 
you know, potentially leaving her father's household. And obviously, you know, in this in this film, the mother is absent. So it's very much a symbolic father daughter kind of thing. Um, there's a lot of uh, the daughter being responsible for the father. And I think I identify with this sort of um, need to sort of take on other people's emotions and maybe kind of like try to manage them in a certain way. And she's certainly doing this with her father. Um, but it's interesting because at the time that I was watching this film a lot, I was like 20, 21, 22. And it really spoke to me at this sort of, and the character in this film is presumably that age, the, the young woman. That that's sort of a normal um, time for these things to come up and for young people to be moving on. And I think that personal experience, which I think is the experience of the wider millennial generation, <laughs> meant that this period of paternal orbit for myself and for our entire generation has gone on for a very long time. And that potentially at 34, actually re-watching the film was not so different to the experience I had as a as a 22-year-old. And this is obviously to do with, with economic reasons and the stagnation of the, of the economy and relative impoverishment of everybody, which has meant that um, the younger generation hasn't been able to move on and to shift into their own adulthood and sort of take the reins of the household as the sort of forefront generation um, within adulthood as sort of like the the um, the second generation as their parents pass into sort of the third age. And interestingly, I feel like um, millennials, you know, obviously have had a really bad rap. Often um, people who are the victims of a social situation are blamed, obviously, for that problem, precisely because they're victims. And it's only when um, things sort of resolve a bit that you sort of come to see that actually the victims were the victims and the victims were the ones that would have blamed. So the you know millennial generation is sort of entitled and um, lazy and all this kind of stuff. But actually, I feel like the reverse is true in many ways in that because of the economic ties between millennials and boomers, and because of potentially the um, relationship to material reality of boomers, which is potentially a little bit out of touch because of the contingent, um, with actual sort of deeper material reality because of the contingent um, apparent excesses that they got to enjoy, which obviously we're sort of paying for now. There's sort of a sense of responsibility for millennials to take care of their parents who potentially they see maybe have made um, certain choices, certain not too good choices, and that are having reproduc repercussions on them. And uh, millennials, I feel like, are not really as demanding as they could be, for instance. Um, and there hasn't been sort of a great sort of shift of responsibility and uh, material wealth from one generation to the next as they are passing into adulthood. And I feel like, you know, economic reasons create sentimental um, reality and I think that there is this sort of responsibility that millennials feel towards their parents. Also, you know, almost like, um, you know, when, when people do an intervention, and I think a lot of uh, millennials have sort of been aware of material reality and what is, obviously there's been this big thing in the UK about mortgage rates coming up and this debate between, oh, you know, people from previous generations saying, oh, the, the interest rates are so high and it was 15% for a month when I was your age or whatever, but obviously house prices are completely different. But having to um, also pipe down on the economic reality, because if, if they admitted it to themselves and admitted, admitted it to the wider world, it would involve foregoing um, fantasy aspirations that they've sort of sued themselves themselves with. But I thought it was kind of interesting, both on that kind of shifting orbit and and sort of um, progression of different moments in life based on people and things that enter enter into your orbit at a given time, but also this strange stagnation um, because of material reality that has led a generation to be in this sort of twilight zone with their parents and not make that kind of umbilical break. Um, even if the umbilical tie is not one to do with, you know, being su yeah, financially supported or anything like that by their parents, but a, a, a sort of a combining of households and a, and a mutual reliance that has occurred because of material reality. And uh, yeah, it's something I've been thinking about for a little while. All right, let's hear what Nina thinks. 
Yeah, so it's um I suppose if you've seen Ozu's late spring, which I don't know if either of you have, um it's very obvious <laughs> that this is an homage. Very Beautiful. I mean, Claire Denis is, you know, a fantastic um, director, and I'm a big fan of, of Beau Travail uh, in particular. Um, and I, you know, her palette is, is uh, as, as already mentioned, an extremely visual one. It's very human and it's very slow. And there's something about this film there are a couple of references, like a mobile phone and and the the, the unfortunate uh, train driver who who doesn't have anything else to to live for after he retires is given a an iPod um, on his retirement. But there's there's very little that really marks this film out as a film made in two thousand and eight. Um, it looks in a way as if it could have been made in the nineties or the seventies or indeed in the late forties, which is Ozu's when when late spring is from. And late spring is a, a very very beautiful film it's it's recognized as a i guess um one of not just ozu's best films but you know one of the best films ever made it's a kind of perfect film really and it's it's very very um focused on the details of ordinary lives and it precisely concerns the difficulty of a separation between a, a father who's widowed and his daughter and the letting go of the daughter and the daughter's inability to let go of of her father. So in the Japanese film, the daughter is, um, I think, um, like in her mid to late 20s. So she's, she's in a way already uh, relatively old. Um, it, you know, I think of my parents, they got married at 23. Um, that would probably be quite young now, I suppose. I'm not sure the average age of marriage in Britain is about 30 something, 37 maybe, um, which is quite seems quite late in some ways. So yes, I mean, I completely agree with Helen's comment about actually what happens, not just in the difficulty of the separation, but when for economic reasons, in particular, families can't separate at all. What does it mean to have gen- a generation where many people cannot even, even with poetic difficulty, um, break from their families? Um, and this is a very poignant question, however one looks at it. Um, I think the film is about choices and precisely the train tracks and these different options that people have and the, how the choices people have made then determine where they might go or where they might not go, in fact. And the suicide of the, the co-worker who, who cannot um, or wasn't able in a way to find meaning really either in the job or in the leaving of the job, perhaps, is um, very symbolically sacrifice, self-sacrificing on the train tracks themselves, right? As if to say there is no through way like this, this, you know, the path itself is blocked by my inability to, to take a path. Um, so there are these kind of um, very, very sad moments um, in the lives of ordinary individuals, you know, and this is a film very much in the genre of Ozu's work, which focuses on lower middle class or working class lives and perhaps more in Denise's case on work, working class. Um, and also she's very much taking up a kind of French colonial um, history as well. Um, I think uh, the, the vast majority of the actors are not white. They're, they're black or mixed race or from North Africa. Um, the daughter is obviously uh, sort of uh, German um, and uh kind of uh, North African. Um, and the the suicide of the co-worker is then sort of played for laughs almost comically with the death of the cat um, of the of the man that she eventually marries. And that, and that whole uh, pivot is, has already been mentioned. But it's a very beautiful cat. It's actually quite sad when the cat dies. Um, I thought the cat was, was splendid. It's this fantastic, grey, fluffy thing. Um, and there's a sort of... Uh, the bathos of putting the cat in a in a sort of rubbish bag. Um, and I, to be honest, I was thinking if I was thinking I might marry this man, that might be a moment where I might be reconsidering my 
my possible desire to marry this man because he deals with the cat. But maybe that's that's the kind of practicality you need if you're going to settle down and have children with somebody. You need someone who can actually pick up a dead cat rather than sit there weeping and want to drink and write a poem about it. Like, nobody should marry a poet. Let, let's be clear. <laughs> These people are terrible. <laughs> so there is this kind of question of like choices, train tracks, breaks. Um, the, the scene I, I wanted to mention, because I don't think it's been mentioned um, so far, which is the beginning and the end, the very the very opening scene and the final scene, which is to do with the rice cookers, um, which again, I suppose you could see as a kind of tribute to Ozu. Um, Ozu's film opens with a, a tea ceremony uh, and obviously we would associate rice with the East in some way. But I mean, none of this is spelled out, by the way. Like Claire Denis is a very subtle filmmaker. I'm making her sound like extraordinarily clunky, but she really isn't. But um, at the beginning of the film, we see the daughter buying a rice cooker. But in the next scene, we see her father bringing a rice cooker back, which is a different rice cooker. So there are two rice cookers in the house. And it's a bit complicated. But I And I had to sort of think about what's going on here. And I looked up some analysis of the film because the final scene is the father with two rice cookers, right? You, you guys remember. So the, I suppose one way of maybe understanding it is that they both, the father and the daughter both bought a rice cooker Right, because they they decided they needed one, and they both bought each other a present, if you sort of mean, or for the house, which they share almost in a quasi romantic way. It has to be said, it's not clear that in the first few scenes that this is a father daughter relationship. It seems very almost romantic, you know, and I think that's that's deliberate in the terms of this. Yes, yeah, the sort of subtleties of this kind of. Um, proximity of, of, of these two who are obviously completely dependent on each other in the way that Benjamin was describing in the in, in a domestic life, you know, the kind of total uh, mutual dependence and for recognition and everything else. And so at the end of the film, you see the father with the two rice cookers, so both the one he bought and the one his daughter bought. And I suppose perhaps one implication is that the daughter bought the rice cooker, but she didn't want the father to know that she bought it so that when he gave the house the, the, the red rice cooker that he bought, she was very pleased. So she didn't want him to think that she'd already bought one. But I suppose it's that he finds, well, after the daughter leaves, when she's married, he finds the second rice cooker, which he then takes out and puts. So in a way, he's got too much, too many rice cookers. There's, 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 he could make more rice than he could possibly eat on his own, right? which presents another sort of, question about who gets what, who needs what, who's left out and what's left over. Um, and I think this film is also about that imbalance. I, it also reminds me of the Iranian filmmaker um, who made The White Balloon, which is also a beautiful film about who is left out, actually, when things are exchanged and and, and when um, objects or desires are transferred. Um, so it's also a film about various kinds of futures that maybe revolve around a certain kind of loneliness and the the family that the groups form in the equivalent of a kind of council estate I suppose you know it's a very um unconventional family right when they they you know the the, the father daughter and this 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 woman who you know the taxi driver and then this other strange young man with the cat that he puts in a bag um they you know, the separation and breakdown of that unit is clearly already constituted by a kind of loneliness and lack in the form of Gabrielle's, uh, you know, unrequited love for the father. Um, but then also there is this kind of question mark, let's say, at the end about precisely will any of this progress, will it go anywhere at whatever speed? Um, and... I suppose, what does it mean if you've already left to have a family? Do you even need or want to then get with someone else afterwards? You know, the, the father is a widower. He has his daughter. His daughter is clearly the most important thing in the world. There's a brief moment, a fantasy scene, which stands out where he's imagining being on a horse with his daughter, right? Which is a, a, a departure, actually, from the realism of the rest of the film. Um, so it's clear that his daughter, in a way, f fulfills his fantasy and his love 
life in a certain way, um, even if there might be other desires to like drink 35 shots of rum, which I wouldn't recommend. Um, even I, at my worst, have probably not drank that much, uh, that many shots of anything. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that, you know, like, like all great films, it is subtle and uh, ambivalent and um, allows the, uh, the viewer to come to, to ask questions about his or her own life and the direction of travel. I was just looking about yeah. how, how much is 35 shots. It, That's it, an incredible amount of alcohol. It says one and a half litres. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's a, like a very stupid amount of anything. Yeah, I guess probably. it's a sort of, it's a sort of. Nobody uh, should go near that. <laughs> and, and this is the thing, what, what he does at the end there, he is either killing himself with the rum or he's getting so drunk that he would, of course, disrupt the wedding and become the center of attention, which I think in both cases is just an awful thing to do to your daughter at her wedding. But the film doesn't show any of that. They act like the rum has no effect on him at all. He doesn't appear drunk. He doesn't appear disorderly. But, of course, if you did at your daughter's wedding drink 35 shots of rum, either you would be dead, you would be in the hospital, you would be blithering all over the place. You would completely disrupt the whole thing. It would be a terrible thing to do to your daughter. Benjamin, I think it's okay too literally. This is a poetic French film. Even even (laughs) boy being so human and emotive and stuff, it is more poetic and kind of symbolic and... You know, but I also was thinking about you. Know, you're describing the sort of the the uh, romance in this. Mm-hmm. Part of the reason I like, it, I mean, I'm, I I think like the technology of the rom com is a disaster for the human race, <laughs> and uh, these most ideological fil- uh, structure of film that there is. Um, it really ties uh, um, love to capitalism, and it's funny because. Um, I've heard people that like do a take on Jane Austen as like, oh, it's the most class, you know, the most Marxist, whatever. It's like, is it though? It ends it like, yes, okay, it does. It's class aware, but then it's also you can fold this in and you can be the one, despite the awareness of it, who transcends, you know, gets the, the, the you know. Is Jane stopped. Austen um, a class reductionist? Discuss. Well, no, I think she's a, um, but anyway, so, so, uh, no, I, I think she's, not class reductionist enough, but uh, anyway, so, um, but the point is that this is actually it's a much more ambivalent. You know, we talk about psychoanalysis a lot, and people have all sorts of different interpretations about desire. And I think Lacan's dialectic of desire is a really important idea, which is you know, whichever way you go, you you get the desire. You don't get the desire, you're going to be miserable. So, um, but some people we can but, only hope. You know, you you shouldn't give way in terms of your desire, which also means you know you shouldn't. Um, give way, give yourself over to it, but you shouldn't let it pass you by. And, you know, there's oh, there's a whole political sort of uh, question of which side of the side of, you know, just dialectic of desire are you on or whatever. But, you know, obviously the fact is it, it is di- uh, dialectic. And, um, you know, the the rom-com is obviously on the, you must pursue your desire, you know, and and not only that, there is fulfillment in desire, whereas this is actually much more, you know, and this, this is the, the obviously like dating apps and stuff of gamified, love and really tied it to the market and that there is an end to desire and not only an end, but like a sort of a, um, a transcendent end. And there's always someone, you know, potentially another person that could be the one that you haven't met the person yet who fulfills you. Well, there's going to be another one because there, it is out there, but actually it's, you know, love and human relationships are much more ambivalent and difficult. And I love the way that this paints her reticence, which I think is very beautiful. Um, and I think part of the romantic dynamic, and I think a lot of people sort of wonder, well, I haven't been, hit by the blow of Cupid's bow and am I really but you know these things you know are take time and you can love people in different different ways and and at different points and you can come to love people and you know yeah so I I think it's a very beautiful depiction of a woman um in her ambivalence and that is love well and the guy kind of backs her into it by threatening to leave the country when the cat dies. He's callous, not just in the way he treats the cat, <laughs> but, but some in the people way he want to backs have her people, into it. 
you know, put an ultimatum. It's also sort of romantic in a weird way. I mean, this is the, by the way, this also ties into the Jonah Hill thing that's just come up of like, oh no, you know, we won't go there, but like, it just is interesting. That Maybe on the beast side. Happens Maybe we can go there on the beast side. You get side. these like, is it abuse? Isn't it abuse? Like what's, everything's abuse, but also <laughs> there does exist abuse and people can be abusive and that also needs to, anyway, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> All right, By the way, I want to say something for poets. There's nothing wrong at all with dating poets. I have liked over the course of my life, a number of people who've done literature, who've done language degrees, lovely people. I, I would much rather date somebody who cries over the cat than somebody who puts the cat in a plastic bag. I'm probably closer to someone who would put the cat in a plastic bag, but I'd like to date somebody who would cry over the cat. No, I, I mean, I say that uh, about poets, you know, in a, in the most self-mocking way, not that I would even, you know. Are you not so my girlfriend actually that? wrote. She is a poet. <laughs> my, my girlfriend actually wrote a book of poetry called Broken Wrist Poetry. She broke her wrist earlier in the yeah, year and wrote I a book of poems. Yeah, we did, so. we did a whole show on, you know, broken wrists. No, on, on the novel. We didn't do a show on the poetry book. She wrote a no, novel. But we did, no, but we did a show when she broke her wrist and we talk about people. We, oh, talk, yeah. we talked about people having broken that. wrists and not being able to pick up things. Oh, you're right. We did. Yeah. <laughs> so I did tell you that she wrote a bunch of poems about no. it. Anyway, yeah, yeah it's great. called Broken Wrist Poetry. It's really easy to remember the title. <laughs> no, but that is very good. I mean, look, I, I, I'm joking. I, I, I've just been thinking about what the poetic impulse is lately. And I, I think it's in a way a sort of uh, perhaps a, a morbid attachment to one's own melancholy, you know, and I think that poets tend to have also often, and I can think of many both historically and recently, um, tend to have issues with substance abuse and addiction. Um, and I guess it's a, a cliche, you know, as well, but it nevertheless, there is something um perhaps like a kind of allure of ex extremism in one way or another, that, that there's maybe like a weird mapping on of, of uh, a kind of self-obsession with one's own misery and as well as like heightened states. And so I, I'm sort of joking, but I, but I do think that actually if you are going to be with someone in any lasting way, it first and foremost has to be practical and that this form of uh, that practicality is, is itself romantic. So I'm very interested in this idea of romantic practicality or romantic pragmatism, which seems like a contradiction in terms. But having looked at my parents for 53 years of marriage, they um, exhibit these two qualities in equal measure. They still love each other completely, but everything they do is sort of in a practical way. It's very hard to explain, but that somehow the, the way in which their romance expresses itself is through... Uh, a practical attitude uh, and it's very very interesting because it, it would seem to be opposed somehow that we would think of people as being on the one hand straightforward and sensible and on the other as being romantic and and laughing you know, but you I can think this is a this is, this is absolutely I was just literally talking about this before because of something that I, I'm quite a practical person and I think that's also why I like making films and why I sort of didn't want to do pure academia because yeah. I actually like doing really practical things and um there's this sort of um, ideological kind of like binarizing, you know, if you're, it's a way to categorize and a way to sort of like um, tame reality, but actually people can contain contradiction. Well, why is being practical and also interested in philosophy like contradictory? It isn't necessarily. It, it, no, but that's what I'm saying. It is for me, right? Okay. I cannot, this is, this is, this is what I'm realizing, you know, and I, I, I've been thinking about Harmatia and the way in which we all are fatally flawed and thinking about the way in which, is it better to know or not what your, what your fatal flaw is, like what your weakness is. Um, and, and, uh, you know, so I've been thinking in this way and I, you know, I cannot, deal with practicality at all and it, really it's, yeah it's getting it's getting worse and worse and worse and this is partly why I couldn't no longer work in institutions and I'm basically becoming enumerate like I've become like a sort of word cell to such a sort of extraordinary degree that like you know things like not being able to sort of make food for myself or like put my clothes away like it you know it's really bad and it is it I, I've sort of entered into this like realm of indifference towards the practical but do you think it's is that like a like a, an innate trait or is that like because I definitely have had times in my yeah. life when I'm in a sort of state where I'm like really messy and I don't eat properly and all this kind of stuff but also I yeah. really love 
organizing home life and things like yeah, that. Yeah, I have been I have been tidier, but I, I think it's a sort of tendency that is to do with the hierarchy that I have, I do have internally. So it's like given the choice, I will sit if I didn't have to do anything else, I would sit in the park and make up poems and talk to the crows and not do anything, like not buy any food, yeah. not wash yeah. any clothes. Like, yeah. I mean, maybe yeah. this is a fantasy of freedom as well, but it's not really, because the more you let your life get out of control, the more you can't really do anything. One so- of the <laughs> things that's really interesting about how Nina, where Nina's at, I think, is that <laughs> Nina is in, in practice, always trying to transcend the body or get away from the body. But in mm-hmm. terms of what Nina talks about intellectually, she is constantly valuing embodied experience and the body yeah. as something which necessarily constitutes life. So there's this wonderful tension. And I think it comes <laughs> from your own self-awareness that you are insufficiently committed to the body that mm-hmm. results in you uh, constantly emphasizing the body, but in abstract theoretical discussions that are relatively disembodied. Well, that's interesting. I mean, maybe it's partly to do with the this tension between different modes of abstraction, right? So my so so the virtual world and all of the ways in which we sort of become less human and and be, become dehumanized and desensitized and you know, we forget about touch and you know, I was just making myself angry the other day thinking about the lockdown when the government were like busy having parties and doing having affairs and meanwhile they were telling everyone else they weren't allowed to kiss each other. Do you remember this? I like it, it drove me mad at the time. I mean, these you know, so this thing, so I'm really like opposed to this sort of, you know, bureaucratic, totalitarian, like forcing everyone to sort of be online and not not be together, not, not be physically together. But at the same time, the um, it's, it's like I want the old practical world with the option to do philosophy. <laughs> You know, so the abstraction is is the old yeah, but the, the abstraction, <laughs> but it's possible. Yeah, but it, it absolutely not is this new shit one. <laughs> exactly, but it becomes less and less possible when everything's just ephemeral and right. You know, like yeah. you know, some some abstractions are better than others. But this is also somebody why... has to has to build institutions for that to be possible. There have to be institutions mm-hmm. in which philosophy occurs, and there's a political economy for philosophy exactly. that I think. There's Can't a we just sit in the field and eat daisies? But people, yeah, and, and for allowing some people to do philosophy requires labor and yes, value yes. generation and stuff. Like but no, but it is true. I mean, I I um have had a period of my life. Well, actually, I mean, my I think my whole childhood was quite sort of like uh, disparate because of my parents' jobs, and I never really had that like ability to sort of nest and be in one place. And I always thought that I didn't care about that because we moved all the time and I was mm-hmm. going between country and country and like I thought that was more exciting and I do actually do that loads just for like work and stuff mm-hmm. but also having like being able to actually I actually really like having the home routine and that allows for greater freedom yeah that's the thing the things I do actually know that and there's a ranging book by Jacob Phillips called obedience is freedom which makes a kind of catholic case from someone who is a liberal you know just a liberal subject, atheistic subject, um, in terms of coming to an understanding that actually if you commit to things and give yourself rules and and actually order your life, that's what freedom is. (laughs) It's not doing whatever you want whenever you feel like it, right? Because that actually just generates chaos and, you know, damage and like it doesn't, you know, you're not free. You're actually beholden to your um, impulses, right? But people also, I mean, I sometimes think that the lack of, um, structure within wider society and roles and civil society and whatever leads to people to internalize like a sort of a totalitarian voice of you know fitness and calories and sure. you know, self-care I've got to sleep this amount of per night blah, blah, blah. and so yeah it's sort of this tricky thing where you need a bit of it but not too much that it kind of like completely dissolves your you well, know, any kind you, of you need you need discipline but you need to have some notion of what it's for and if you're just trying to make yourself better but for no purpose i want to mm-hmm. get really buff why to do what to help who uh, there's mm-hmm. got to be something that you're doing it for apart from just trying to gratify yourself or trying to persuade yourself that you're in better shape than other people or trying to get laid or these things that very often are what is motivating those projects. That's what's really missing. And nobody's able to articulate what any of this is for. And so people get wrapped up in these families. And I, I, one of the things that really stood out to me as I watched this film 
is just how flimsy families are. If you think about them with a wider timescale, nuclear families, and I think that this is the best critique of the nuclear family, it's just a little bit too small and that makes it flimsy. It's just a little bit too easy for one of the kids to just become wayward and become completely mm-hmm. you know, not part of it anymore. It's a little bit too easy for somebody to get cancer and die a little bit too young. It's a little bit too easy for you know, some, something to, to go wrong. Somebody leaves an uh, empty nest syndrome and they just move away somewhere. Somebody runs off with some man. There's a divorce. It's just very easy for yeah. nuclear families to come apart. Well, I think this is what maybe where the rice cookers come in at the end again, because it's like actually there's too there's like too much consumerism for the size of the family, right? It's like actually you need more people <laughs> than you do things, right? So if you did have a big extended family, you wouldn't have more than you need in terms of consumer goods. And so on. I mean, it's, I'm, I'm making it really clunkily, but oh, yeah. everybody's got to go and get their own house. Right. right. And when you go yeah. get your own house, you have to equip the kitchen and you wouldn't need all of these multiple right. kitchens if people were in the same house. Exactly. But the thing yeah. is, this is absolutely true. But um, and obviously like the, the sort of impetus for everybody to be a sort of pod dwelling fend for yourself for instead of having a sort of wider nexus is obviously a motivation, like is a way to uh generate value extraction but then at the same time we uh, we don't live in an epoch where there's sort of like um cultural norms around extended families in the same dwelling although this does happen in various parts of the world and in immigrant families and stuff you know that, that sort of like um negotiation of um who does what and who owns what and who owes what to whom is uh is something that I think a lot of people are kind of grappling with. Like when you look at the statistics of um, in Western countries, the percentage of 30, 30 to 35 years or whatever living with their parents, it's like ridiculously high, which is actually mm. quite shocking. And that obviously has a an impact on, but it is interesting just how much responsibility the daughter feels for the father. And of course her leaving leaves him in this uh isolation in the sort of like the rice isolation but I think what the the what I took the rice thing to symbolize was her desire to please her father and to give him the gift of her receiving the gift yeah uh, was why she hid the fact that she'd also yeah. a rice cooker no exactly but it's also about who not knowing who is responsible for what and there are other scenes in the film where she sort of does his ironing and he's like no I want to do it so there's also the kind of who takes responsibility for for who question on on what. And I suppose this is always a question when you live with somebody about how you divide tasks and who does what. So, you know, I live with someone who's super, super, super tidy and has incredibly impeccably high standards for cleaning, which is great. Except if you're trying to do the cleaning and you can never do it as well. Also, because you don't care, because you'd rather be outside talking to the crows. You can't clean to his standard. And if you never help, then you don't help. So that becomes a different issue. So, you know, you come to arrangements like, I'll do this and you do that. Like, you know, it's much better that way, actually, because then the person who has much higher standards never gets annoyed with you and you you stop acting like a subby brat because you're like you know um well I don't want to do it properly or you know I can't do it properly anyway so I'm just gonna do it really badly you know and you end up in these sort of childish postures well I do anyway but yeah tidying one of the things I I was just gonna say one of the things I find depressing is that as it becomes harder for people to go out and start their own households, people are just shrinking the size of the thing that they're going to buy for themselves. So they'll try to get a tiny house. They'll try to live in a shoebox so that they can live independently because they can't get along with their family well enough to all live in the same house. The status issue, the the shame that people feel if they live with their parents in our society is so intense that they'd rather live in a shoebox than continue to live with their parents. And that puts a lot of pressure on people to take jobs that are not really the jobs for them or jobs that will make them happy so that they can stay in the shoebox. And if we had a society where you could have an extended family that lived in a larger house, people would be more comfortable. If you could have 10 or 12 people living in a large house. And if that was the kind of standard way we did things, 
I think that would be more feasible. It would certainly be easier to get there from where we currently are in the States. But I mean, capitalist values, obviously, when intergenerational families were sort of more of the norm at a time when uh, cultural norms still had precedent, still hadn't been dissolved by capitalist attitudes of ownership and who yeah. owned what. And, you know, you had sort of um, values that were to do with the sort of snobbery around capitalist values and 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 a prevention of encroachment of those values and a protection and also a recognition of um exploitation like brute exploitation and what it was and um the desire to prevent as many people in your orbit as possible from having to do that obviously then you need to exploit people in order to have people not exploited but there was a sort of a, a recognition of setting people up uh you know, even traditions are all around the world that, you know, historically have been, um, you know, massively, um, you can just see it everywhere, you know. But um, this, obviously, and, you know, you see this in the tension between boomers and millennials of when a, a, a moment where people were so apparently flush and there was so much credit or whatever, um, and a house cost three times your salary and now it's nearly nine times or whatever, you know, that this puts people in different positions and there's not just shame on the part of the people who um, are staying with their parents, but on the parents who are housing their children and yes. this belief of, you know, um, merit, merit and meritocracy that people, when there was a more upwardly mobile system really buy into because it worked for them. And then when it doesn't, you know, so there's a huge amount of um, tension. I mean, you could, I'm surprised there hasn't been more, there haven't been more uh, novels and, uh, movies and arts made art made about this sort of generational tension. Um, yeah, right and I think right there's also a, a enormous drive now to shore up belief in meritocracy that we are seeing, for instance, in the states in the recent affirmative action decision, which I think is is heavily motivated by a desire to convince people that the posts at Harvard go to the people who deserve them, uh, and therefore that in general positions in society go to the people who merit or who deserve them, which is just completely preposterous. All of these universities have far more applicants who would be capable of doing perfectly fine and perfectly well there than they can possibly take. So they inevitably end up picking applicants on the basis of arbitrary and ridiculous criteria Absolutely. that has nothing to do with anything. Let, let me guys, yeah, uh, let me ask yeah. you guys a, a question. Assuming there was like a cap on international students or assuming there was like a sort of finite number of people applying every year, what percentage of the population let's say in America, do you think should go to university? What percentage could go or what percentage should go in terms of what the economy can support? Because I think the share of people who could go to university, could do a degree, could enjoy it, could do a professional job and like it is much larger than the percentage of people that the economy can support doing that. Yeah, I, I suppose I'm not. I'm not talking about. Uh, okay, how, how do I put this? I I think there should be provision, and it should be highly maybe subsidised for lifelong learning, right? So I teach adult education. I think that everyone should ac have access to, you know, classes and courses that weren't necessarily assessed, that wouldn't necessarily contribute to a, um, I don't know, any sort of symbolic qualification necessarily right but people should pursue things for the, their own interest but in terms of like what genuinely what higher education would mean if if the focus was on less on what the economy needed quote unquote but rather more on who would get the most out of extremely high level thought it with a with a view to contributing or expanding the sum total of human knowledge right so the emphasis was on very high level capacity to deal with theoretical ideas, scientific ideas, mathematical ideas, you know, and so on. I mean, what percentage of the population are actually that? <laughs> I, I think the percentage of the population that could, for instance, do a PhD is mm -hmm. much larger than the percentage of people who currently do them. There are a lot of people who don't do PhDs who are know that it's a bad economic deal to do one, that they wouldn't get paid more if they did one, who are 
practically minded, not because necessarily they couldn't be theoretically minded, but because economically they know that it doesn't pay to be theoretically minded. There are a lot of people that I met that were you know, certainly could have done it. There's a, Every year when I was teaching at Cambridge, there are people that I looked at who I go, that person could go to grad school and they didn't. Mm -hmm. uh, there was a large number of those people every year. And it was because people were anxious to get jobs that they knew they could get. They were anxious to move out, get economic autonomy. They were anxious to uh, maybe live in, in London and, and enjoy the London nightlife. So they took, say, consulting jobs or you know, jobs in the, in the financial sector. Everybody knows it doesn't pay to go and stick around for the PhD. So I think the number is, is still significantly larger. I wouldn't say that it's everyone. I'm not someone who goes, oh, everybody could do this if only they, you know, it's not a, I don't have a tabula rasa view, but I still think the number is a lot larger than currently uh, uh, the issue is that the economy doesn't support it. So the right, I think, sometimes argues, oh, only a tiny, tiny number of people actually have the capacity. I don't think that's true. Uh, at the same time, I, I don't think we're economically creating the right support system for people who do it. So a lot of people go and do a PhD, and then when they come out, they need to find a way to be employed, and that compels them to take money from rich people, from these granting organizations. And those organizations influence the kind of work they do because they only grant the money mm -hmm. to people who pursue certain kinds of projects. And so I think a lot of people on the right look at these people and look at the work they're doing and go, oh, wow, these research projects look like bullshit. Why are we even you know, putting these people through mm -hmm. school? I think a lot of those people are capable of doing better and more interesting work. There's just no money available to them if that's the kind of work they choose to do. And so this has a kind of self-fulfilling angle to it where uh, if we have a system where economically you don't get rewarded for doing good or interesting work, then all the work that does get produced will be bad. It doesn't mean the people who do the work aren't capable of good work, but they won't get rewarded for that good work. Mm -hmm. The interesting thing is, so having said that, and I think that's certainly the case at Cambridge, that people are, you know, um, often thinking about you know, careers and the sort of management consultancy and banking, what have you. But, um, and that, yeah, there's, I'm sure, many, many people more than a uh than do it are capable, but economic reality has got so bad that a lot of people do PhDs precisely because of the fact that they can get a bit of a stipend or delay the fact that there are, you know, the 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 confrontation of no jobs. So a lot of people I know do do PhDs for economic reasons, even though it's very small pay. And I think that's also part of the reason because yeah, you need finance to do it there's a lot of nonsense phds that are um sort of like uh ideological veils for capitalism type things but i would i would also say that everywhere i've been previously the number of people that were with me who could have gone to the more advanced place that i ended up going to was always larger than the number who actually did when i was at warwick the number of people at warwick who could have gone to cambridge and done well there or could have stayed for grad school, again, at Warwick was much larger than the number who actually did those things. When I was in high school at a state school in Indiana, the number of people who could have gone to a Warwick or could have gone to a Cambridge uh, and done fine was much, much larger than the number who actually went. Most of those people ended up just going to in-state schools to save money. They went to IU, they went to Purdue, these local universities that just uh, slot them into careers and slot them into ordinary jobs and don't really present to them grad school as even something to do. Uh, and mm. you know, I yeah. think back to when I was in elementary school and middle school, there were a lot of people who could have been honor students who weren't taken up into the honors classes and could have done all right and were told early on by the schools that they really didn't have anything to offer. And so dismissed uh, intellectual activity is not for them. But yeah, for sure. And I, you know, like I say, I think there should be absolutely opportunities for people to pursue what they're interested in. I think, but basically, I've been thinking about this lately, you know, if you do have free higher education, right, with a view, the thing is, like, we don't know what universities are for anymore, right? Are they for the economy? Are they for creating citizens? In which case, what set of values are we trying to inculcate in them? Is it for creating systems of elite? We just published this piece by Michael Lind, who's a very interesting um, 
writer in Compact about the need to create create plural elites, right? So we in the wake of the affirmative action decision that actually you need multiple systems of, of, of elite creation, right? Because actually the, this, this system isn't working. Um, but I don't know, is this, maybe I'm being absolutely deranged and purist and then completely not based in reality whatsoever. But if you had like five or 10% of the population who are like, you know, and and how you find these people, and obviously there are poor people who are like supremely intelligent. There are people of all races who are supremely intelligent, or whatever, whatever. But it has to be something like this: this criteria, criteria, which is, you know, not necessarily like IQ, but let's say like potential or capacity to excel and to push the boundaries of, of human knowledge, right? Because not everyone is going to do that, nor should they. And and having a high IQ doesn't make you a good person. In fact, it often no. makes you the opposite. Um, a, lot of pushing the, a lot of pushing the boundaries of human knowledge also doesn't require being that smart. There are a lot of PhDs that are done with kind of empiricist methodologies that involve you know, going out and talking to people or going out and counting up I, some stuff I don't, that or being in a lab. That's, that's not that's not knowledge. That doesn't contribute. Like knowledge has to be pure and theoretical. Right. Like this is just, you know. Uh, I don't know what that is. It's not. It's not what I. I uh, a lot of empirical science or medical research doesn't really take the form that you and I would regard as your purely theoretical, but it does contribute to human knowledge. Like yeah, people sure. who but, but, do but randomized I, I, drug trials or who formulate maybe, maybe drugs. Maybe have a have a apprenticeship that leads you to being able to be a good gatherer of information and extrapolation of what it means that you say. I mean, I, these, these people are, we used to you know call them alchemists. Alchemists are contributing in some way or were thought to in the Middle Ages contribute to human knowledge. People who formulate different kinds of chemicals, people who think up new substances or new materials. These people do contribute to human knowledge. Uh, and you could frame what they do as research. A lot of companies that employ people now, a lot of pharmaceutical companies, defense companies, they have people who do research and who do mm-hmm. make advances in human knowledge. They're not necessarily the kind that we think of as, as you know, but, yes, but why can't those but. precisely be located in private companies, right? Private companies seems much better situated to have all these research departments, well, I'm not sure that, that private companies should get to decide what people do research on. And I think there are a lot of natural scientists who don't have enough autonomy in the kind of research they do because they can only do research that's funded by some private company. Right. Sure. Yes, but, it is a disaster. If, if you were, a, a, you know, open minded, you would allow people to research like whatever they wanted. Yeah, but in, point <laughs> of, in practice, you always have this, this <laughs> overly... What we really should have is a great big national science endowment that uh, is very generous and funds lots and lots of different projects. It's harder for natural scientists. They need a lot of equipment. They need a lot of of machinery. And all of that is expensive, and it makes them more vulnerable to just being able to do the kind of research that these companies will pay for. And the more our research is shaped by external funders, the more perverse it all becomes and the less ordinary people are going to believe in any of what we do. Mm. I, I, for some reason, I sort of think that universities should only have theoretical physicists and theologians. This is my new theory of. Wasn't that the way it originally was? Yeah, exactly. When they first started <laughs> university in like they were right. 95 or whatever. Exactly. <laughs> they, this is what we need to go back to. We need to have go Maybe back to deranged Nina, okay, the way deranged. we're going to go back to this dark ages <laughs> is precisely if you want to return to the dark ages. Obviously, they're only dark because we'll get we don't know anything about war. them. What? So the culture war will take us to the dark ages. It's the sort of yeah. annihilation. They were only called the dark ages because we don't know anything about them, not because they were like spooky and horrible. Uh, we don't know anything about them because they were. Horrible, <laughs> but not there, there was a fall. Yeah. There was a fall in living standards. There was. Yeah, but that's fine. If you get to sit in a field, I mean, you don't need that much, right? <laughs> Thinking about God and the universe. No, That's what you need. In fairness, I think I a large part of the fall was due to the collapse okay, of mobility. But, but, no, but everything everything would be directed towards the family. That's what I'm saying. You'd only have like you'd only have to pay for a few crazy people to sit in a field and talk about the universe. But I, I do think we need some people who do engineering and natural science. These kinds of things, you know, medical science, these things have a have a place. 
They have a place. Yes. And I think all of these disciplines, we're all struggling to respect each other because all of these disciplines are getting polluted by outside money. And so we're all losing regard for what one another does because we can all look at everybody else and go, eh, all your work is funded by these outside hacks, these rich people who don't care about anything but promoting their own companies and their own uh, pocketbooks. And this is running down the respect for all the fields. It runs down people outside the academy, their respect for the whole academy and the whole body of human knowledge. But within the academy, it runs down our respect for one another. I'm you know, as guilty of it as anybody, I'm sure. Anyway, <laughs> we're at an hour. We're so guilty. We've got to go and do uh, a B-side. But we will go and do that. And if you'd like to listen to it, uh, do join us on Patreon. But in any event, thank you guys so much for listening. And I, I hope you'll you'll get to hear from Helen again before too long. But if not, yeah. see you, Helen. See you soon. Bye. Bye. <laughs> Bye-bye. Bye-bye.